Good morning, Miss Yo. Uh, scripture reading today is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Thanks, Haley. We are in a series, and we are talking about atonement. In time and preparation for Easter, it's the Lenten season. And we are looking at the crucifixion. And the biblical word for that, as we've said all along, is atonement. It's both the biblical and theological word that describes Jesus' death. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ died for our sin according with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures. And so over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at what that means in accordance with the Scriptures. We're looking at how the biblical writers describe it because the Bible is full of metaphors that try to help us understand what the atonement is, what Christ is doing in that moment of his death. And there's oftentimes what we've talked about where we can locate ourselves in one metaphor. And that's the metaphor that we use to describe what Jesus is doing and what Jesus has accomplished. And sometimes when we locate ourselves in one metaphor, we miss out on the bigness of the totality of what the scriptures are telling us the atonement is about. It's like if you just go camping in one spot over and over and over again. It's a beautiful spot. It's totally worth camping in, right? But you're limiting yourself. You go to all these other places and you're like, whoa, check this out over here. Didn't know this was here or that over there. Like that's the thing that the Bible is asking us to do is to visit and camp out in all of these different metaphors because they all illuminate for us the beauty of what the atonement or Jesus' death is accomplishing. And so it's important that we camp out in each of them so that we understand the fullness and the beauty that is happening. Last week, Johnny talked about redemption as a picture of what is being accomplished through the atonement. He walked us through Exodus and this notion of freedom that comes through the atonement. And then Leviticus and the notion of Jubilee. 
and release from debt, as illustrated in Ruth through kinsman redeemer. And so there was all these different biblical ideas that filled out our understanding of redemption. And today we're going to talk about reconciliation. That part of what Jesus is doing in the atonement is a reconciling work. And we're going to look at a number of different passages in the text to show us to fill that out for us. But we looked at one today, just as Haley read for us, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm just going to read it. We're going to camp out on verses 17 and 18 in this passage today. 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The Greek word there for the new creation has come is actually the new creation has come into being. Meaning that with Christ, the new is born. So there's a picture there that something has been born, but it's not fully grown. Which doesn't mean it's not here, but with Christ, the new creation has come into being. It's an important thing for us to remember, because we'll get to it later. After saying that, Paul then writes to the church in Corinth, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world, cosmos, Greek word, meaning everything, to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is a really clear description in the New Testament of what is happening in the atonement. Reconciliation is impossible with the presence of that which rips apart. We don't really have to reach for things that we could name that would rip us apart. I think if I just sat for a minute and had you all name a few things you could. There are things that rip us apart from each other. War arguments, even irritability. You know, it may seem small, but it can rip you apart from someone real fast. There's things that rip us apart from the earth. Earthquakes, tornadoes, floods. There's things that rip us apart from ourselves. Pain, arrogance. Loneliness. And then there are things that rip us or try to rip us apart from God. I think perfectionism rips us apart from God. Accusations, self-doubt. Self-dependence. And the thing about the things that rip us apart from each other from, the, from things outside, from ourselves, from God, is that they are death-dealing. And that which is death-dealing is pretty wide and vast 
and broad, like I've just said. Sometimes the Bible uses darkness as a metaphor for things that can rip us apart. The Bible sometimes talks about powers or principalities that can rip us apart. The Bible also uses what's called sin. And I think it's important that we, like Johnny in week one, talked about what sin is. So we're going to go back to what he said. Because sin is easily reduced to particular kinds of behaviors. But if we remember what Johnny talked about at the beginning of this series, that sin is more than that. Sin is a disruption and a distortion or a corruption of the goodness and love and relationship and purpose of humans. And Plantagia says this about sin in particular. Sin is culpable shalom-breaking or peace. If there's peace, sin breaks peace. Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. And it is, as Johnny said, hyper-relational. So sin moves in all the directions. It's like the chaos maker. And it can be what we do to others or to the world outside. It can be done things that we do to ourselves. It can be something that we experience, harm done to us, violation done to us, trespass done to us. And it can be in the systems and the structures that we build. Scott McKnight, because it's hyper-relational, a hyper-relational theory of sin clarifies systemic corruption. Cracked icons, remember icons are image bearers, who are image bearers? Humans, we are image bearers. When they coagulate into clusters, create conduits for corruption, they do so by creating systems that break down equity and love in various relationships. And so sin can be a part of systems that are built, that are, that are oppressive, or are privileging only certain types of people. It is hyper-relational. And it can also be the stories that we hear and the stories that we tell. The stories that we tell to reduce other image bearers, other humans. Or it can be the stories that we seek to make when we seek to make others better than they are. So when we hear the word sin, it's so vast. Not only is there darkness and there are these forces present, there's this reality that, that there is a corruption of identity and purpose and love which manifests itself in all kinds of different ways, moving in all kinds of different directions. And so it's not just a simple moral arbitrary infraction. It's a reduction and a distortion of identity of who we're made to be, to love to be present. Which is why when the Bible talks about sin, it does so with urgency. And an urgency not, as Johnny said, because of fear of punishment, because love casts out fear. But sin has an urgency in the text because it causes real harm. And as we just read, the part of the atonement is a reckoning with all of these things. There's a part in the passage that I think is so beautiful and that we need to take to heart. 
God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. It's important that we note that. Because sometimes we hold the infractions that we do against ourselves. And sometimes we hold against others their infractions. God doesn't hold those things against us. But they are things that rip apart. And they need the consequences or the actions or the kind of writ large, it needs to be brought back. When things are ripped apart, they need to be brought back to wholeness. And so atonement, as reconciling in nature, means that it's about dealing with that which rips us apart. The darkness, the power, and the sin. Everything. Reconciliation is about dealing with that that rips us apart. And so at one moment, which is how we've kind of broken down the idea of atonement, it's about making things whole again. And so reconciliation is a course of action designed to bring back together. So There's a question that is begged in that that comes up immediately. So what would God be bringing back together? That's the question. What exactly is God bringing back together? Well, the biblical text paints this picture for us. And it's vast. The words that slide into moments and their words when we talk about this coming back together in the text, these words are so beautifully placed. I'm going to read because they're words that are placed into moments where things are really feeling ripped apart through violence and difficulty and pain. And these words speak in and they give us a snapshot or a picture of what we can expect when it comes to God reconciling or bringing wholeness. Isaiah chapter 11, and by the way, The whole chapter is worth reading, but I'm just going to start at verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. These are moments that are looking forward or messianic that look forward to Jesus. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. This is a vision that is different than David Attenborough's Our Planet. Has any of you seen that? Like David Attenborough is the most calming voice if you've never heard him. He's like this English old gentleman that is kind of like 
everyone in the UK knows exactly who he is. He's a British treasure. He does these, he does these um, nature videos, and they're intense. He's all calm, and then all of a sudden, a lion will come out and rip apart a gazelle. And he's got this, like, the calmest voice in the world. And then the lion is walking towards its prey. The prey is now being taken. Flesh. You know, and you're like, whoa, dude. Like, the way that you're talking does not correlate with what I'm seeing on the television. I was watching Our Planet with my cousin's three-year-old, and I was like, do you know what we're watching right now? I said as we're watching it to my, cousin's, uh, to my cousin as her three-year-old is sitting there, and she's like, oh, yeah, she really likes it. I was like, whoa. And so we're watching, and, like, these little baby birds are just there, and this fox comes and just, like, grabs a whole load of them. And this little three-year-old just looks at me, and she's all, I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty harrowing. And then she, like, just looks back at it. In a situation like that, you can't really relax. I don't, I am not relaxed when I go hiking here in Utah. I'm pretty convinced that some animal is going to come and tear me apart. And don't tell me it's irrational because it's not. Plenty of people tell me, like, that's not going to happen. And then I watch some YouTube video of some cat that's trying to attack a human. This picture that we get in Isaiah is that nothing's going to rip us apart. And there's nothing that can rip us apart. It's easy to rest. At the end, it says his resting place will be glorious. It's this picture, it's this vision of what it looks like to have a sense of wholeness. It's really cool. I would like to not be afraid when I'm walking. I would like to know that the things out there know that we belong together. It's beautiful. There's another moment in Micah where the picture is given to us again. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. Global mediators are constantly working at settling large-scale disputes, which is great because what's happening in Ukraine is not okay. What's happening in certain places in the Middle East is not okay, Syria. Somalia, it's rough. And this picture that we get that's painted for us in the text about wholeness is where tools of violence are turned into tools for gardening. Which means that instead of ripping things apart, they're used for cultivating and for growth. This is a visual that's showing us what reconciliation looks like, wholeness. And then the final picture, those ones are kind of forward-looking to this moment of Christ, and then we have a final picture in Revelation. Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
Then the one who was seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. And there's a picture for us of a time where there's no more death. There's no more crying and there's no more grief and there's no more pain. And a promise that God is making all things new. The language that we use here for that is renewal. And I think it's important for us to look at these texts because the future isn't a matter of human beings going to be somewhere with God on earth, in heaven. The picture that we see is a picture of reconciled existence. That there will be wholeness. That God's space and human space and other created space are going to live in harmony. Kind of existence that holds us together in restfulness instead of ripping us apart. That is true reconciliation. And so the biblical narrative, the whole story points to something beautiful to wholeness, to reconciled reality and reconciled relationships. And is that reconciliation for you and for me? Absolutely. But the news is larger. That's what I'm driving at. Oftentimes when we think about reconciliation, especially in relation to the atonement, we like to talk a lot about how it's like us reconciled to God or us reconciled to each other, and that's true. But the work that Christ is doing is so much bigger than that. Theologian James Callis says this this way about the atonement. It is a cosmic event affecting the whole of creation. It is not simply forgiveness of my guilt, but salvation is a liberation of the whole world process of which I am a part. Is that, the language, is that the language of salvation that you've inherited? Of reconciliation that you inherited? Limited view of atonement doesn't get us where we need to be. So how does atonement help us get there to this big picture that the text is talking about, this reconciled reality? How does atonement get us there to a resting place, to garden tools, no more tears and grief? We've remembered kind of the beginning and the end of the story, and we remember all of it in conjunction, moving as a dance together. There's a harmony between the entire story. And I'm grateful for N.T. Wright because when he writes when God becomes king, he does such a beautiful, masterful job of weaving the entire text together. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene in the Gospels, we're going to look for a few minutes just at the book of John. John introduces Jesus in the Gospel in the New Testament. And when he does, he immediately alerts us not just to the beginning of Jesus' story here, but to the beginning of the story in general. This is the beginning of um, John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of humankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the beginning, light, life, creation. Ding, ding, ding. What should we be thinking about? Genesis. John is actually inviting us to think about the beginning. Those are all textual cues. And Genesis, before it's about debate, it's about our introduction to this wholeness. This beautiful world that's come together in harmony, where image bearers, humans, represent God and God's activity in the world. They're there to represent God's image, icons, full of creative purpose, made in goodness to produce goodness. So when we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, shining into darkness, we're taken back to the book of Genesis. And that word, Jesus, the one of life, the one of light, the one of creation, took on flesh, human. And then as John goes on in his gospel, he talks about Jesus more and more. And the themes of light and life are all the way through. Where Jesus is speaking life into moments of death and bringing light into moments of darkness. Because where darkness is, it gives way to light. Darkness has no substance in the presence of light. When you turn the light on, it's kind of vanquished. It just goes away. This is all written and beautifully written through the Gospel of John. And so we get to the moment of crucifixion and Pontius Pilate declares, Behold the human. Behold the icon." Behold the image bearer. And in that moment, Pilate unknowingly reveals that Jesus is the sign and symbol through which the world will see God. He represents and bears God's activity in the world. Behold the human, the icon. And then Jesus' words on the cross echo that of Genesis chapter 2. Knowing that what he's done is done, it's finished. And I quote N.T. right here. And in the end, when the light has shone in the gathering darkness and the darkness has tried to extinguish it, the final word echoes Genesis once more. Te te lestai. It is finished. The work is accomplished, there follows the rest of the seventh day, the rest in the tomb before the first day of the new week, and Mary Magdalene comes to the garden and discovers that new creation has begun. John's gospel is retelling us an old story made new. As Jesus raises from death, Jesus is in the process of raising everything 
up with him. Revelation, remember 21, I'm making all things new. This is the course of action that is bringing everything back together again. That is what atonement is doing. At one minute, bringing wholeness, rest, peace. Where do you need rest? Where do you need peace? Where does the world need rest? Where does the world need peace? You might say to me, Heather, that's all well and good that you would tell us that story about God doing that and Jesus doing that, but it doesn't feel like the world is at peace. It doesn't feel like there's wholeness. There are things still present that rip us apart. Right? Yep. It's true. So then what of the atonement and the resurrection? That's why I wanted us to remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The new creation has come. The new creation has come into being. It was born in that moment of resurrection. But it's not fully grown. but it doesn't mean that it's not here. Just read it again for us, verse 18. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is the part of reconciliation that mystifies me. God constantly throughout the story, Abraham, Israel, invites humans to participate over and over and over and over again. I don't know why. It has not gone well. And here it is, a declaration again. He has committed to who? Us. What? What bad idea? Not in God's heart, it's not. He is committed to us, the message of reconciliation. Where there are things that still rip apart, and they are, we are fully aware of them. There is a course of action in the now designed to continue bringing back together, to continue fostering and forming and taking us towards wholeness. It's not hanging on us. Christ in love will do it. But we're invited in. We always have been in partnership with God to co-create goodness, to love, and to give. That mystifies me.
The kingdom of heaven is, locate, is not located in some distant galaxy or elusive dimension. According to Jesus, it's all around, among us and within us. God's kingdom of love is always at hand. A guys are ready to blow at any moment. But for whatever reason, it manifests in our world and in our lives through human representatives. We are designed for pouring the kindness and generosity of God into the world, nurturing and nourishing all that is. That is our design. It's what we're made to do. It's who we are in partnership with God to co-create goodness. And you know what? God never gives up on us. God that called or that God made good, God does not give up on us. Amazing. Beautiful. At the atonement or at one moment, it's the reconciling action of God to bring all of it, all of it, including us, back to wholeness, back together. And while it may seem slow and inefficient and ineffective sometimes, God is including us in that. So we don't just receive wholeness, we help to produce it. Which is also an act of reconciliation. Because what we do is we participate in repair. That's how reconciliation actually happens. Is when we repair things that are ripped apart, then they can actually become whole again. So it is masterful to me that God, in God's wisdom, would allow us to participate in repair. That's true reconciliation. It doesn't depend on us, it really doesn't. But there is space for us to do it. Why? Because it's who we are. Image bearers. Who have the capacity to nurture and to nourish and to co-create goodness. So as we think about the atonement and we think about this new life that was born in Christ, that he's now taking us towards this harmonious, reconciled reality, we have an invitation to participate in repair, which is the work of reconciliation. So as you think about that, I would just invite you to just think quietly about where is it that you need repair in your own self? Where do things feel torn apart? Now just today as you come to this table, just make a request that Christ would make that new. I don't know what that looks like. Making something new is only in the imagination of God. But I would just ask that you would ask God to make that new. 
to partner and that you would be able to partner with God in making that new. And then as you think today maybe of somewhere in this creation or wherever there's a need for a prayer, pray for that too. Prayer is part of participation. It's part of reconciliation. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes when we look at the whole text, it can be really overwhelming. But if we don't look, it feels like the thing that we do is reduce what you're doing to very small things. Not insignificant things, but things that aren't big enough. And so I pray today that as we've read from Isaiah about things belonging together that are sometimes hard to imagine or mica with war or there being no pain or no hurt, no death, that sometimes that is so hard for us to get our heads around because that is so much a part of our existence. So I pray this week as as we walk around and when the spring flowers are visible that they would be the little signposts to us that death doesn't have permanence that darkness doesn't extinguish light but that it's actually the other way around and I pray that that would allow to be born in us hope And in that hope that we would be people who lean into your presence by your spirit and that we act as reconcilers in this world. That we would participate in goodness knowing that it's permanent. That love lasts. And so spirit, I pray over your people today. That as we prayed from Ephesians 3, that the power that is in you would make your love real to them a love that is beyond knowledge. And that with that knowledge, they would then be able to be conduits and mediators of that kind of love. And that in so doing, we would participate in the work that you're already doing, the work of reconciling and making whole. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.